Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. All right, welcome to Chapter 16. We're in 2009 and talking about Twitter and social media, and I'm delighted to welcome Sue Beckingham and Chrissy Naranci. And we're here to talk about what life was like back in 2009. That seems so long ago. What were you two up to in 2009 in the world of work, life, social media, and Twitter? Well, 2009 was the year that both me and Chrissy actually joined. We, we, did, did you know that, Chrissy? 2009, April, we both joined Twitter at the same time. Um, did we? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought I'd just, just check when you joined. And I have to remind myself when when I joined. And and it kind of made me smile back thinking, oh, my gosh, this is so confusing, this Twitter. Who shall I follow? I know, Stephen Fry, he's supposed to be good on Twitter. <laughs> Who's he following? Um, and that was my starting point. But at the time, I was doing um, a master's degree and I was interested in online communication and how texting was changing things and, you know, how more people got phones, which, you know, was, st- was still fairly early at that that time, mobile phones. And then it kind of morphed into social media. How's that affecting? So, you know, I'd, I'd got into Facebook and got into um, LinkedIn from a professional point of view but that the Twitter was um, was very different, obviously, and it started to lead me to find out how it was being used in the US. And I think that was my starting point and realised when I started to make connections with people like um, Ray Hunko, um, Eric Caballon, um, Jeff Jackson, Eric Stoller, um, that actually there was something here connected with, you know, it being potentially useful for higher education so that was my my starting point okay so 2009 like sue uh, found out uh, i also joined twitter i didn't know that sue joined in the same months even without uh, knowing Uh, when i joined i had no idea how i'm going to use it i was actually perplexed how the whole system works and how this would add value to what I was doing at the time. At the time, I was actually um, working at Sunderland University as an academic developer in e-learning, as it was called back then, and had a, a vivid uh, interest even back then in, in anything uh, using technology to enhance uh, learning and teaching. In the same year, uh, I looked back at my blog. I actually created my WordPress blog in 2009, which was a transition from an earlier uh, blogger Uh, blog I had um, but I decided to move because uh, because at that time you couldn't get any other uh, platform where you had a blog plus a normal website so I made the transition early on and since then um, I I kept using it but um, yes I had no clue how I'm going to use Twitter but my first tweet looking back because you can find these things and I had to look (laughs) (laughs) to look it up, was actually sharing a tool that I found, which is Etherpad. uh, And I felt that maybe other people would find it useful too. And I think that says something about me personally and what I have found useful overall in social media. It is that uh, sharing and connecting with people. Yeah, there's no surprise why I have these two wonderful women on the 
podcast episode today is I share kindred spirit with them. So 2009 was the same. I signed up for an account in 2008, but 2009, like you, Chrissy, I started um, blogging a bit more professionally, quote unquote, meaning I was talking about my grad school work. I was talking about the teaching and training I was doing. And it was kind of like Twitter connected to the blog, connected to like Flickr and other social media aspects, all were kind of wrapping in. You're right to have that community. And it's funny that this is housed between like just before the connectivism chapter and after the portfolio, e-portfolio conversation, because I saw Twitter being like the offshoot, like you said, the communication channel and where the communities lied. And I laughed because I, I ironically, I pulled up my own blog. Now they use my personal archive. My, it's where I take my notes. Um, and the I wrote an ode to hashtags. It was their 10th birthday in 2017 is hashtags were really how we started to find people and interesting topics and have conversations and and even form chats. And um, you two won't be surprised. These two are mentioned in the chapter because they started uh, one of the hashtags that they had conversations around the LTHE chat. And and I think this is a, the learning and teaching in higher education chat. And I was like, you, I, I found it a really cool space to bring people together. And that's where I was back in 2009. And I, I had lots of hope for where Twitter could take us and social media could connect us. And I don't know if I still do, but let's, let's start with the hope first, because I think we all had hopes and dreams and um, really exciting things that were really inter- interesting to us once. That is important what you highlight there. And first of all, I think we need to thank uh, Martin Weller for including the LTHE chat in his chapter, which is highly um, interesting and critical as well. It highlights the benefits and the the potential challenges um, of it and will be very useful reading for anybody even now, you know, who is considering starting Twitter because not everybody is on Twitter, but many are still thinking, "Hmm, should I go or or not? Um, So that is important to highlight here but also the power of the hashtag um like you say laura and, and maybe you know sue can uh, add to that um which brings people together you know you curate conversations and uh, in a more focused way um that can be extremely valuable for you know professional development i'm an academic developer so my um my colleagues are my students but also my my peers and uh, we have seen that it can be transformative for many, even if you silently, you know, and not visibly engage, just following certain hashtags can help you keep up to date. You're absolutely right. And I think it also sort of helps to curate or bring people together. So, you know, following one particular person led me to the um, US Ed chat. So that then introduced me to other people. So I started following them and then I realised, actually, let's let's look at who they're following themselves. And you go down the list of it. And I, I then started to develop a, a network. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of gone on from there. And it actually gave me an opportunity to attend a conference. There was um, a conference called FOTI, the Future of Technology and Education. And to be able to attend the conference, it was free, but there was a limited amount of tickets and you had to apply for a ticket through through Twitter and I'd missed out on it the year before. So, you know, I, I thought, oh, I better start tweeting about this. You know, I, I hope I managed to get the right date, you know, and um, and get the ticket and, and then started to follow a few other people. And that was really exciting when we actually attended the conference because you met the people that you connected with you know, so that's where I'd met, it was 2011, met um, David Hopkins for the first time. 
um, you know, and then we went on to, to present the following year at Pelicon, which is um, the Plymouth um, e-learning conference, I think, something like that. And, um, yeah, we presented there about social media because, you know, we developed that interest. And then it was probably shortly after that I started to, um, well, I met, met Chrissy through cedar conferences but you know you you meet people sometimes first through through twitter and yet you have those exchanges of um information or just listening in you know one of the things that i i refer to is positive silent engagement rather than lurking you know and it's that observing how other people are using twitter i thought was was really interesting and then you know it's just wonderful to actually meet people face to face for the first time um you know and those relationships of developed and you know you've, you've got shared interests or or you know limited things that you talk about and then you know you might not see those people again for a very long time but it's yeah it was fascinating how it, how it kind of extended my network because locally where I was nobody seemed to be very interested you know she's that mad woman talking about social media again <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I will say in 2009, there weren't a lot of people on Twitter. So that's just a reminder. Like Twitter was very young. Like it wasn't even, it was hard to even explain what a hashtag was. It wasn't really brought up in news like we see it today. It's a very different concept. So um, people forget how like new and novel it was. And it was a space where there were water cooler conversations and we see people in different pockets there wasn't it wasn't as scales there wasn't as big we didn't have worry about fake news or misinformation it was not used in the same way it is today and i think it was a different kind of beast of a platform um because and this is probably what we're going to get into next but i do want to say it was a space where people could go to and find a scholar like i found yeah friends before a conference i actually Found, heard about a job that I t- had later on. Like these are like, this is how like smaller Twitter was in some of these communities. Like you could ask people for help on finding an academic paper. If you're doing research to um, ask someone a question on how can I do this X thing for student orientation or academic advising and people would respond back. So it wasn't as flooded in as far as information scaled in people. And it was just a different kind of feel online early days. So that's why I just want to call out uh, before we talk about later on when it gets a little ugly in the troll bots and other characters like Martin brings up in the chapter. At least at the beginning, the connections you made, you felt that they were authentic. And uh, like Sue said, you know, you met some people online and then face to face. And I have a very similar experience with the same person, Sue uh, David Hopkins. But what that meant to me is you, you, you see these people online, you don't know really how they look for real. When you meet them, you think, oh, David was actually quite big, you know, sort of uh, large built. And uh, it is fascinating how you then uh, feel really connected to that person that you have never met before just because of the conversations of the exchanges um, you had uh, online. There was a point actually as well. In fact, David didn't have a photograph. He had an avatar. So it was it was always sometimes a bit of a surprise what people did look uh, like. Did he, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was it was a cartoony avatar. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but you you did wonder, is this a tall person? Is this a short person? You know, it's the, the things that you are generally interested uh, in a person and then notice when you when you see them. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. But the connection is then instant, often is really instant and feels like this is a friend from years ago. You know, you know each other really well. Mm. 
yeah you kind of continue it, it can the conversation. be like that. yeah not, yeah, not always. Sure. yeah yes and the key and part nice. of it was like I was thinking about it I'm glad you bring that up it was it wasn't just a how people use social media blogs twitter everything youtube tiktok it and instagram it wasn't there's no such thing as influencers back in the day. There's no th- such thing as like promoting things or worry about a brand. People were there to have conversations and they were sharing things and being reflective and they were building relationships and asking questions or soliciting for advice. Like PhD chat got mentioned. And so I have a, a big affinity and love for um, uh, the PhD chat community because we would talk about issues and things that we're struggling with and your uh, in our isolated worlds, in our research worlds, even though we're in different domains or disciplines, we could go and have a conversation about methods or learn about um, a way to study whatever and a, and a practice. And I was like, it was just a really fond space. There was a lot more care with these tools and these social technologies really yeah, brought people together. Like I loved when we met people in in real person <laughs> beyond a Zoom a Zoom room than today. And or we were able to have a Skype conversation. A few of us would Skype back in the day and and chat and um, have more than 140 or it was now 280 characters on Twitter. And that was really lovely. And um, it still reminds me, like I still have friendships and professional peers that we would connect. And it still means a lot to me now because we've been quote unquote, Twitter friends or online friends for a long time. But they're also really great peers and colleagues that I, I value. And I think that community aspect can't be forgotten. So I'm glad you two bring that up because it looks different. If you're joining now in these spaces, it's different in 2021. I also think it was a, a connecting branch, if you like, to to other places. So, so for example, you know, I followed Shelley Terrell Um and you know, she invited me to to do um, a webinar. And um, Howard Rheingold, I went on one of his like mini courses, which was good. Um, it allowed me to apply for some funding, and that's when I met you, Laura, when we came across to to Texas because I wanted to um, meet Ray and um, Eric, and then realised that you know America's quite big actually. You know, one's one's in Philadelphia, one's in Boston. That's quite a, a way away. And and Jeff Jackson was in um, San Antonio, so I thought I can't go to all of those places in America. Um, and that's where I found the South by Southwest conference, and I thought that's just sounds an amazing thing to go to. Um, and then we met, didn't we? Outside of it, you didn't actually go to the conference, but we met, um, and then kept in touch afterwards, and then. We actually did try to submit a paper, didn't we, to the conference the year after. And, you know, I, I got to know you better and then Eric and, you know, it, it 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 just takes you to different places. And that would never, ever have happened, I don't think, without Twitter. Um, you know, other examples is possibly LinkedIn, but, you know, the social, social media does open doors to things that you you could possibly, you know, have those opportunities. But I, I don't think I would have done. Not, not, not the examples that I've, I've given. Definitely, these spaces definitely create opportunities for uh, connecting with people and uh, and ideas. I would like to comment on what Laura said earlier about a maybe more romantic past, <laughs> yeah. potentially, and how things have uh, changed now. And uh, you know, the the celebrity status in social media can be intimidating for many, while others really 
thrive on this, be aware of uh, emerging that are persistent and often also dominate uh, spaces like this, as Martin also highlighted in his chapter. Yeah. And I was going to also say, like, I think about... Um, the nature of power dynamics in spaces like you're just saying and how people approach it. There's always going to be for something that's positive, there's an opposing side. So affordances, affordances and um, identity comes up on these spaces. Like we want to democratize conversation and Martin talks about this, but there's also another group that's feeling marginalized or outs inner outers kind of, and we know this in network study in, in general. Um, so it, it, it had an impact to the offline world when we showed up at events or conferences or meetings and um, what does that influence look like and who reaps those um, kind of rewards and punishments. So I, I do like, like there's that whole section on um, the paradoxes that we can't call out without um, calling people in to say, um, is there what are the challenges that we've seen as it's been perpetuated and what are we thinking about as we as we work in these spaces or use and use these platforms that we don't own still absolutely you know and i think you know whether whether, whether look at um you know where people come from ethnicity whether they're the female you know sort of more marginalized groups or whatever that that, that there are people out there you know that deliberately provoke and um intimidate and I, I guess very, very unkind to actually being completely um, out of order in the, in the way that they think, say things to people and, you know, people have been bullied and there are the trolls and, you know, touch wood, I haven't been on the receiving end of, of that, but, you know, how, how people manage that, um, you know, is is it's an individual thing. You know, I think if if it was me, there's the temptation to do what just come off social media completely. You know, it's it's like if if you walked into a room and you were attacked, and you walked into that room again and you were you know uh, attacked, then you'd start going in that 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 room, that place. Um, you wouldn't mix with those people. You know, whereas it can come, you know, sideways really, can't it on on social media, um, and. I guess there is an element sometimes if people are provoking um, and you don't feel that it's a suitable thing to be doing is just ignoring it and moving on because, you know, the, the tweets will disappear after a while. You know, if you engage in that conversation, sometimes that can exasperate it. I don't know. You could argue, is that a cowardly thing or is it the right thing? I don't know. I think in a context is always very important, isn't it? Um, but there are some really upsetting examples that, you know, people have shared with me. Yeah, I, I left Facebook a couple of years ago, actually three years ago, because after I finished my last study on it, I just didn't really like the algorithms and what, what they were feeding into. Since 2014, I was kind of really questioning where I wanted to be in some of these spaces. And probably my behavior is different on Twitter. Um, I probably blog less. I probably podcast more because I have a podcast problem. I own that. I am not taking an intervention on that yet. But I do think I've enjoyed having more meaningful and richer conversations. And I, I'm not getting it from the platforms that are taking my data. And I had some questions on like um, platform for privacy, both on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Facebook owns Instagram and WhatsApp. And so I do think about it. And back in the day, I wasn't because I was for teaching and learning. I was 
having my students uh, blogging with WordPress, uh, using Twitter to have conversations and using it as a signal and sharing with themselves. But would I be doing that now? I think of it very differently. I, I don't ask my students to use Twitter in that way. I use I, use, I ask them to use it to um, choose to follow organisations, particularly my students are looking for placement opportunities in their, their third year. Um, so they'd work in industry for a year. And there are a lot of um, companies that have also got social media channels for their job pages. So, you know, that kind of thing I think is interesting or there are professionals that they might find of interest to to follow, but I don't give them activities to publicly tweet with the exception of one module, which is I teach um, digital marketing, an introduction to digital marketing um, and, and that they, they do need to use Twitter so that they can actually understand how it's used in a marketing sense rather than a personal capacity. Um, so that's a slightly different, but no, I think students always need to have that that choice because as we're discussing, it is a, a very different place and, and some aren't as good as uh, filtering out the things that you don't want to listen to, you know, which is kind of what Clay Shirky used to say, you know, we're talking about information overload and he always argued it was filter failure and you know to this day you know I still keep having conversations with people do you use lists so that you can just go into a segment of the people that you follow so you know whatever the group is you know if it's a study group or, or a professional group or whatever that you wanting to, to look at rather than the whole of your stream which you know seems to have extra things in there now you know <laughs> you've not chosen to follow but they still seem to to appear Okay. I mean, Martin says something very interesting and very uh, true for me as well, that the loud voices become louder. And uh, while we talk about democratizing and inclusion, uh, it is, um, we have to acknowledge, is a quite exclusive uh, environment, social media that pushes the marginalized voices into the darkness, um, I would say from my experience and what I have heard um, others saying, there is also, of course, a lot of good, <laughs> like we have said uh, already. And I think for me personally, the problem lies within the platforms themselves, that uh, there are social media giants behind these who make money from these. And if you ask me, you know, um, what would be an alternative? I think that would be fascinating to to explore uh, and see how we can remove uh, beyond social media to uh, to go back, if you like, and that sounds nostalgic, um, to go back to how it used to be, you know, to have uh, people connecting with, with real people, um, with being authentic to who they are and not portraying uh, something that they are not. Yeah, and, and it's interesting as I listen to you both share, like I'm thinking about, what I wasn't thinking about at the time. And so you mentioned like all white dudes that were on these spaces and the white dudes that create these platforms. I'm a white woman. My point of privilege looks different and where I sit in the world looks different. And I really didn't think about what voices weren't being heard or amplified and ones that weren't even being thought of in these um honestly, patriarchal white systems. And I also think a challenge is for me, we're looking across to, um, I haven't been trolled that much. It was only during that Gamergate conversation hashtag that I had to deal with some real trolls and bots. But I will think about like the people that 
walk into these spaces like they walk into life, um, they're going to have challenges, whether it's uh, their affinity groups, their sexual orientation, their race, their, um, you know, language. I think about that all the time now. And I wasn't thinking about that back in the day. And I am unpacking my privilege backpack to say that I'm still learning and this is an ongoing practice. And I have to be aware of um, context and what this means, because a lot of these spaces, honestly, were being repurposed for marketing crap. And I know this because I think about a study, um, George Velichanos and a couple other grad students and I looked at only Canada and the US, but all our institutions in higher ed in America and Canada are all like promoting stuff. They're highlighting positive events and showcasing public university of the life, but they're not hitting the realities of what is really troubling some of our learners. They're not talking about um, how they can help their students in different ways. And it just became a different vehicle for like broadcast message delivery and not really conversation community and um, support. And so I had some issues like it was, I, as I was finishing my uh, PhD and doing a postdoc 2015, I kind of was like, these spaces are not the same and they not really and under our control. So what should we be doing to take that back or take ourselves out of it? And I think I listened to Manoush Samarodi's talk, uh, her TED talk. She wrote a book called Bored and Brilliant. And she said, you know, the two types of people that are called their uh, clients users are drug dealers and uh, people who create uh, software and platforms. And so um, if you're the user, uh, you're also part of the product. And, and I think about that more and more on like, where do I want to be in these digital spaces and pockets these days? And what is my purpose or intent? Um, I still don't know. I'm figure, trying to figure it out. So maybe you two can help me with that. That's fascinating what you say, Laura, because I had written down, you know, uh, social media can be a drug, uh, an opium of the masses, which uh, I know that in in Greece, recent history, when we had, you know, loads of problems after the Second World War, um, football was the opium of the masses. So has, you know, that being replaced by social media, <laughs> you know, it's um, it would be interesting to find out. But um, experiences seem to indicate that this may be um, the case. Football is proper soccer. Just so you, my other listeners know that she's saying soccer. I, I love footy, so I'm a big football oh, fan. Sorry, so. yeah. No, it's good. It's good. I, I don't know who's listening, so I just like to put in little tidbits. It's an interesting point, yes. actually, that, that, that makes me smile a little bit and, and how how um, people that I would say are um, professionals and maybe a little bit stayed in their, their ways Saturday afternoon on Twitter. Oh, my gosh, they've turned into another being, you know, particularly if they're um, – team isn't doing as well as they want the team to do and you know they don't agree with the referee at the time and you know this conversation is going on on twitter and suddenly they've completely forgotten that you know they've um that they're public and other people can see this it's a bit like being on a train isn't it when you're listening to to your mobile phone you answer that phone and all of a sudden you're in this bubble and you've forgotten that everybody around you can hear every word you know they, they can probably hear the person on the other end um but yeah, people forget where, where they are and get sometimes a little bit carried away. But uh... One thing I think would be useful to highlight, though, is the opportunities to connect with others that social media and Twitter present to individuals who are lonely, who are on their own, who have nobody, you know, nearby 
to talk to. So it, it, it can be a lifesaver for them as well. But also another point, which is not directly connected to this, is um, to what you said earlier, Laura, about using these spaces, um, you know, and that um, they are used for marketing, etc., and generate, you know, loads of cash for, for certain uh, companies that are behind it, is that people have always we have always appropriated tools that have not been designed specifically for learning this is not the learning uh, a technology that has been designed for learning we have appropriated this so we have we are actually the parasites you know that um, have uh, come into that space and used it for something that it wasn't intended to and that has always been the case that technologies that haven't been intended for learning and teaching seems to be the ones that work <laughs> <laughs> more we, we just need to remind ourselves of the um, um, the interactive whiteboards for example which is a technology that has been designed um, specifically uh, here in the UK it's uh, it is in every classroom but is it used you know that's something and to what extent or, or do we just use it for powerpoint uh, projection yeah and, and I think as well as, as Twitter developed you know I mean the, the original um small amounts of characters that that grew and then we got some you know direct messages group direct messages and I think that that was a nice step forward in a recent um in the recent few few years because that that allowed those personal conversations to go into that group it was almost like chat you know I mean there's obviously whatsapp now as well but you know something would have come out of that and let's let's have a you know a private conversation and you know reaching out as Chrissy said to you know people that you you see them tweet something and that kind of gives you a little warning bell that says hmm, let me just check up on that that person to see how they are so you know because you're connected on on twitter it's quite easy then to, to, you know, jump in and do that direct message. And if you wanted to, you could make it into a, you know, a large, larger group. Um, whereas, you know, the WhatsApp, you need to know the person's telephone number. So, you know, I think that that's um, been useful. And, you know, I've, I've certainly appreciated it when people have reached out to, to me and they kind of thought, mm, let's just check how she is. There's, there's obviously something going on there. Um, well, I think um, I want to say, Chrissy, you reminded me, um, I think social media maybe saved my life. So I want to say, like, I moved to Texas in 2008, end of 2008, beginning of 2009. And coming from Toronto in Canada to the state that I never thought I'd move in, that's so conservative, I was like, who are my people and how do I find connections or how do I stay connected to peers? So I, I think um, I'll own this, which I didn't reflect back on that. I think it really helped me to blog and stay connected on Twitter. And it's when I started being part of, I think, Alec Koros and I think of Tanya Justin and I think of other people that like I got to know and feel like I'm part of a community um personally and professionally, because I was just studying learning sciences and getting into my own practice and what that meant. And I don't think I could have done it without the scaffolding of some of social media aspects. Like I may not be in some spaces anymore, but I'm just reminded that I had a community and people individually. So I didn't feel isolated and I didn't feel con like disconnected from Canada or disconnected from people I would get to know in the profession. And um, I think it did help me because 
I think I struggled my first year. I don't don't want to self-diagnose depression, but I think I was pretty bummed to leave a really cool city, Toronto, to move to Dallas. And I was like, ah, I'm in a concrete jungle and I have to drive a car again. And I, I wasn't really happy with my life, but I could go online and find other people to like lift me up or learn about other things. And I think that was something I want to say that that's a pretty strong thing for a lot of different affinity groups and learners that are like, I feel remote now because we're in the pandemic and they still probably feel a little bit off and disconnected. So it could be an opportunity, but knowing that this space isn't meant for it, it's where conversations go. Yes. Yeah. Can I add to that to share a, a, a personal experience linked <laughs> linked to yours, which has to do with my doctoral studies. I was a part-time um, PhD student uh, working full-time <laughs> with a family with no cohort attached or anything in a, in a completely different uh, city. And I felt extremely lonely. You know, the supervisor support will never be enough. So I did feel lonely, but I had Bea de los Arcos from GoGN, the, the graduate OER, um, net, the, the global, wait, I need to get this right, because the global OER graduate network um, who found me and uh, and embraced uh, my my study and I found uh, well we see it now as a family it has become you know through these online conversations and obviously physical um, also get-togethers um, on an annual basis for some of us at least it has been a lifesaver during that uh, often very lonely uh, and disheartening journey that stretches over a number of years but during that journey we have loads of questions loads of unknowns as we know and we often feel incompetent, I would say, at least for myself, I don't want to generalize uh, and bring anybody else in, incompetent of bringing it to completion. So having, knowing that there are peers out there somewhere around the globe, in this case with GoGN, is magical and gives you hope and also builds your confidence and develops competencies because we do support each other through that network. But also with my methodology, I used a phenomenography. Um, I reached out because I reached a wall I couldn't get through this and I thought I need help and I actually went to Twitter and um, a very dear colleague who became a friend Margie Macmillan uh, responded to my call for help she was an experienced phenomenographer and um, yes I mean if it wasn't for Twitter or social media I would have no chance of connecting to all these lovely people around the world and learning from them and with them can I give a shout out to, if you haven't listened to chapter 11 between the chapters, I had a rich conversation about the Go uh, GN group, all the supports um, with Judith, Catherine, Virginia, and Marin in that conversation. Uh, they are lovely. To, they talked about it. So go listen to that. And I want to give a shout out to Dr. Nasima Riazat. She's the one who started the PhD chat hashtag. And she's the founder of that. And she's now doing great work, um, but founded that to help build um, PhD capabilities and leaders and that PhD chat conversation. Yeah, that saved that saved me for research. And then there's so many others like my ACK advise chat, the academic advising group. I was an advisor professionally at the time. And if I didn't have that water cooler once a week or once every couple of weeks, then I would have been at a loss because I, I felt like there weren't people doing the same things I was doing or didn't have the same kind of issues or challenges. And like Sue said, there weren't people working in these digital social spaces that we could talk about 
about how to teach, learn, and work with social media because that was foreign at the time, believe it or not, and listeners, the youth that are listening today, what? No one didn't have a TikTok? No. These things, Snapchat weren't around then. So yeah. these were things that I really felt supported by others, like you all. What would we do during the pandemic if we didn't have network technologies? I mean, I've been wondering if that pandemic would happen 30 years ago, you know, how would our life be? I don't know. <laughs> would we be writing cards, postcards, letters? Letters. We used to write letters. The, the dear old telephone, isn't it? Where you were on the phone and you think, how much will that cost me now? <laughs> That's true. This is true. Well, walking down the road, because my dad actually, you know, as, as a youngster, um, put a lock on our telephone. There was, yeah. there was three three girls in our house. So I used to like have to save up my, um, at the time, two pence pieces and uh, ten pence pieces that went in the phone. There was two slots so I'd have, you know, a big big collection of coins and you just hope that, you know, that they keep on going so you could have a conversation. <laughs> we take for granted that the ease of our communication, and this is reflected in a number of our chapters. I was wondering, um, thinking about what's in this chapter, is there anything missing that we should call out? Like, I think he did a good, I really like the, the way that the paradoxes were shared there. And he, I know that Martin touches on Twitter the most and other social media in general, but is there anything else that you want to mention or include? It struck me when I was looking at the um, social media and learning bit, that there's the four parts to it. So there's, it, it, potentially could increase student recruitment, student engagement, student retention. Um, and there's the conversations that are happening between prospective students and existing students that most people have no idea about. So, you know, there's um, the student room, for example, you know, where, where they're talking about, you know, which university do I go to? What's it going to be like? What do I need to know? Um but then there's things, you know, that link on to, is it rate my professor? Universities have tried, or the marketing departments for universities have tried to use this as, you know, something to bring students in. And you've already mentioned it, Laura, that, you know, it's, it's all the, the wonderful things that's happening, you know. And I think um, I particularly observed it in, in American universities, you know, the big sports teams and the mascots. And, you know, it's, it's very rah, rah, rah and, and, um, and wonderful. But. You know, how, how do people think, you know, people that aren't engaged with those kind of sporting activities, you know, well, what's the university going to be like for the people that have got to commute for an hour and a half every day or go back to care for the families, um, you know, and, and all those different situations, they're not going to have the same student experience. So there's, there's lots more to explore to see if it is possible to actually do that in a positive way. You know, we're clearly not doing it to the best of what we could be doing, but, you know, what more could we, we do? And it's interesting sometimes seeing universities, and I think our university, my university has done it, is where you have student takeovers, so they'll take over Instagram, you know, and sometimes that can make it more authentic and more, more engaging because, you know, the students will talk to students and then there's a bit of interaction going on. And understanding where, where the spaces they frequent are, you know, there's there's a little bit of chasing the students to find where they are. It's like, you know, where, where's the local pub? OK, we'll go there now. So the students move from that local pub and they'll go and find somewhere else. You know, wherever it, I'm using the pub as an analogy for where, wherever they socialise, but the social media space, um, you know, 
is that really a good thing to to do? Are we encroaching on their spaces, which means that they feel that they've got to move move on and go some somewhere else? Um, and it, and it's interesting talking to students, my students, and their how they um, have their support networks. So you know, WhatsApp is quite popular still. Discord for computing students is popular. You know, I've heard a lot in, in the last few weeks talking to students as a, an academic advisor and they're using Snapchat. So they've got little groups and, you know, the sharing. You know, it used to be text messages, but, um, yeah, they seem to like the the apps. But it, it, it's just always changing, isn't it? Hmm. Yes, I would pick up, uh, I would agree with um, Sue on perhaps what is missing is I would have loved to see in some examples of how um, social media and Twitter has been used successfully and effectively with uh, with students. There could be potentially, maybe Martin for the future, something to do, uh, a mini selection of, um, of case studies where this has um, actually worked. Uh, like I, I said earlier, it was good, and thank you so much for being generous to mention the LTHE chat, but I would have liked also to, to see the GoGN uh, featuring there and all the important work, um, you know, Martin and, and colleagues are doing in, in that space because we are using extensively um, social media for that um, as well. Then, I mean, this is a discussion about, I understand, social media, but what is behind and what we are saying is about social learning. So, Something that I would have liked to see maybe more in, in this chapter, or maybe again, another opportunity for, for extension or version two, Martin, speaking directly to you, would be about how can we move beyond social media to get social learning? How can that happen? And to what extent can actually existing frameworks, pedagogical frameworks, conceptual ones and empirical ones, um, and Sue and I have developed one, <laughs> for example, the 5C help in this process. But are there any other spaces? Are there other opportunities we can harness and maybe should harness to go back to um, to the good things of uh, of being authentic and connecting with each other? I love that. Some some of the work and why we're in these spaces is because we're social. Like, it's, forget the media part, but like, how do we interact with each other? Um, my question to Martin would be like, I liked how we started talking about the research side, and that's such a big. Uh, thing to do and I know this from uh, the digital media digital learning social media research group work we've done to there's so many pockets of where this is and how this is being studied um, different lenses so I'm thinking of Tressie McMillan's work I'm thinking about um, there's so much Bonnie Stewart has some great work and projects so I always want to highlight where different voices are talking about that and this honestly, Martin, is a very complicated chapter. So I think it's very brave that you can capture as much as you did in a chapter because Twitter and social media are not small topics, but you touched on it for people to think about and poke at. And so um, I'm going to kind of think about questions that I would ask the community now is um, how are we examining some of these spaces? So I want to think about the research what are we looking at these days? And um, what are we thinking about if you're going to scaffold for any sort of professional development, training, teaching, learning? Um, what are the opportunities that are still there that we can create pockets? Uh, I think all social media is looking the same these days. So I'm kind of like snore on that. So I don't think I'd study this anymore. But if I was to study is like, what are the interesting communities, interactions, and like, 
lessons we can pull from. And one of the areas I want to ask are, and that I'm kind of curious as the work that happens in these spaces that are volunteer, the moderators, those who facilitate chats on Twitter, they work on groups or they are uh, leading different conversations in WhatsApp. So what's the hidden work behind that? Um, what questions would you have for the community or Martin about this before we wrap up? Yeah, you got that's fascinating. So that's fascinating, Laura, what you say. And definitely there needs to be more research uh, in these spaces and, and to see the, the real value, um, the, the challenges I think we are quite aware of, but where are where do the opportunities um, I think lie? That is important. I mean, with Sue, we set up the, the chat in 2014, <laughs> the LTHE chat. And since then, we haven't really evaluated, uh, you know, what we have done. It has grown since then. It started as a pilot, um, but we can't stop it. It seems like unstoppable. You know, the community has taken over and um, well, can it go on forever? I'm not sure, but in a few weeks, I can't remember the date, Sue, you might remember. We are remember celebrating 200. When is That's it? Right. In March. I can't remember sometime. the exact dates. Yes. Yeah. I don't even know what today is. We are celebrating the 200th tweet chat, which is a big milestone. And the idea is that uh, Sue and I will be running a, a sort of trying to start evaluating the initiative, what people are getting out of it and where this will take us in the future. Because can it go on forever? Can it go on in this format? Uh, like you say, Laura, there are all kinds of, of different um, challenges and commitments required from everybody involved. If you want to study the chat, you can talk to me. I have an AcAdvise chat paper I'll share with you. Uh, there's different ways to study it, so happy to share. <laughs> Well, that would be fantastic if you yeah, can help us um, and maybe even be present during that chat on, you know, or in preparation even, because we are preparing for that, what question to ask, etc. We would very much, I, I'm sure Sue would agree, welcome your wisdom and expertise in this area. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the other perspective is, is um, speaking to your students and seeing, seeing what their perception is. Can, a lot of the things that we've been talking about um, and, and how it's been valuable has been our personal experience, our own professional development, you know, sharing of teaching practice or, or, or um, being PhD students or research or, or any of those other things that are part of our working lives but you know what what do the students think and I've spent a couple of um well four four years with students in recent years on um a special interest group after they attended the social media for learning conference at Sheffield Hallam um and they called themselves SMASH which is um social media for academic studies at Hallam but what we looked at is like okay well let's sit down and discuss how can we use social media um you know and that's kind of for for the learning thing so inside and out of the classroom keeping in touch with each other there's the um collaboration the sharing of learning and there's the showcase of learning which you know if they've got a professional presence online that's really important as is the flip side of not having one and you know understanding what value things like LinkedIn can bring and and also there's the supporting side of things so there's those kind of four four strands and it was interesting seeing my students tease those out and you know share their experiences and use of 
a range of tools. And when I say social media tools, there'll be other apps and things. Um, and using that to have a discussion with both their peers and tutors to see how it could enhance the learning experience to develop that sense of belongingness to organize themselves you know learning in group work for example so you know the conversations is not just for us it's bringing in the students um with you and fellow colleagues and, and having those rich discussions and potentially debates about what platforms we should and shouldn't use anymore because of all the the things that that we've mentioned, um, you know, and and understanding that what's out there needs to be filtered, and you know, not take it for granted that they they have the um, confidence to do that. You know, it's it's one of those things you 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 have to to practice, don't you? Expressing your views and and so forth. I find the conversation fascinating, I have to say, and it made me think of the following, because I think probably all three of us are of the generation where social media was not our default, open was not our default, it was um, private was our default, private communications and, and letters and phone calls to individuals and not to groups, etc. So I'm just wondering if that makes a difference to the younger generation. I don't have an answer, but their default is open by default. Everything is public. Everything is out there. And is that the reason or could that be one reason why they are retreating perhaps into private smaller spaces or conversations that are private and shy away uh, or, or don't recognize the need, you know, or the value of having these open conversations or on Twitter very or other point. social media. Yeah. So that, that is something that would be very interesting, I think, in any research to, to explore if Martin, Laura or anybody else uh, is doing, you know, I think that would bring some insights um, into where we are now and what could be a possible pathway uh, for the future. I mean, there will be multiple pathways, um, I suspect. And there should be, there should be choice. Um, Sue mentioned that earlier as well. Definitely. I think from the students' perspective, you know, and, and this is students going going back down to, you know, younger students at, at school, not just higher education students that, you know, have experienced bullying. There's this... Um, thing that you've got to be sharing the, the very best of your life which then makes people you know think oh my gosh my life's so boring what, what, what can I find to make my life look as you know wonderful and perfect as, as you you know and uh, there's all the associated problems that come come of that and that that's you know became a a bit of a thing I, I, I know my my daughters they're, they're both in the 30s now but they they said thank god social media wasn't there when we were at school you know I'd have been a nightmare <laughs> Um, you know, they're, they're really grateful that they didn't have that because it was, you know, distracting and, you know, the, the things that were shared, are well, shared. Something I'd, I'd love the community to think on, and this is my challenge, is um, where are you doing and what communities and what spaces are relevant to you now? And what does that mean in your own practice? Because as much as I want to look to learner, I'm not going to keep up the learners. It's like keeping up the Joneses. I, I think it's really critical for us to reflect on our own 
practice professions, identities, and what this means. And I'd, I'd be curious just to know where people are at. And I really hope there's a blog or a, a response back to this for the podcast, because this can go on forever. But I, I will stop us here and thank our guests for coming on. Uh, this conversation can continue uh, probably on, ironically, Twitter and social media. And mm-hmm. I, I just want to thank you so much, Sue and Chrissy, for your time. It's We can Welcome. go on forever, but I'm going to end this now because who knows where we'll spiral into. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, and thank you for problem. Martin for, for writing that chapter and including us because otherwise we wouldn't be here. So thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Martin. Thank you, Laura. Thank, thank you, Martin. Thank you, <laughs> thank you Sue. Thank, thank you, social media, for connecting us all and, and Twitter. Yes. You've done some good work out there, Twitter. Thank you. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.